I'm Ashley. I'm Mallory. It is finally here. The big 2-0. The big 20 episode. We made it. Yeah, it's crazy. Sorry we're coming at you a week late. It's been a little bit of a whirlwind in our lives. Yeah. Um, God, I don't even remember half the things that have happened. Oh my, Barry is... <laughs> she found something to play with. Yes, sorry that we had to skip a week. Lots of things have been going on. Unfortunately, my grandmother passed away. um, I guess it'll be two weeks on Wednesday. Well, two weeks from when this episode is out. But uh, she had gone through a lot prior to her passing. Like She was in her 80s and had been in lots of different assisted livings, had gone to the hospital several times for, you know, breaking her hips, breaking her wrist, like all sorts of things. And my mom decided to finally take her out and just like let her stay with us because she was not doing well at all. And that day I ended up staying home from work and she ended up passing away. So, um, with all of us there, which was, I'm glad I could be there. And I think, I think she held out that long because she wanted it to be on her own terms. Yeah. She could be with her family in a place that was familiar to her in her own clothes. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it felt like, it sounds so weird to say, but it felt like the right time and it was peaceful and it's sad, but um, I think we're all at peace with it. But yeah, so. Yeah, she had been through a lot. She had yeah. survived a lot. She had. She was one of the first people I'd ever heard of that got COVID. She got it, I think it was April 2020 or even March 2020. And she, they didn't think she was going to live and she ended up surviving miraculously. She's like survived strokes, brain bleed, um, all sorts of stuff. So she is like one of the toughest people I've ever met in my life. But, yeah. It's um, crazy. Yes. Rest in peace, Jesse. Yes. Grandma Jesse. Anyway, um, other than that, I went to Charleston to see family and South Carolina. Yeah, Charleston, South Carolina. I don't even know you have family in South Carolina. My cousin Mara lives there with her oh. husband and um, my little baby cousins who are about Adrian's age. So okay, okay, yeah, that's cool. So what's new with you, Mal's? <laughs> Trying to move, first of all. Oh, yeah. Finally secured home. That's amazing. I know. We'll be... Such a relief. Moving slowly over the next... Well, we can't move yet, but over a few weeks' time, because we got a little bit of an overlap. But we're staying in the same area, so I can still go to my Kroger. I can still go to my dentist. (laughs) (laughs) Your brother's living with you, too, right? Yeah, yeah. He's going to move in. And, um, yeah, so we finally got approved for the house today. So thank God. That's amazing. Congrats. A little worried because our lease is going to be up. (laughs) Yeah, I remember that was a big stressor. Another reason why we decided to postpone the episode. Oh my God. Um, yeah. I'm also going to the Bahamas. What? (laughs) On a cruise. Oh, nice. (laughs) 
I think it's just going to be me and Houston because we invited Abby, but she, our sister, but I'm not sure that she can come now because I don't think she's applied for a passport or anything in October. Okay. So, and you guys know better than anyone how long it takes to get a freaking passport. Yeah. Of course that was Canadian, but still, (laughs) still, we still haven't received it. It turns out, so my husband had applied to get his passport renewed uh, so we could go to Canada last month, but he had done it months before. It never came. And it turns out he could get into the country with just his um, permanent resident card and Mm. some proof of citizenship for Canada. But we found out that the reason his passport never came was because the picture was rejected. Are you serious? And he got it done at a CVS where it's supposed to be like, like 100% exactly how the passport photo should be because they put it through a system and like check like to make sure your facial expression's right, the like proportions are right, everything like that. Yeah. And it was so funny because... I got my picture taken at CVS too, and I hated it so much because it was like the most ugly picture I've ever taken in my life. And I refused to turn it in, and I told my husband that I was going to take my own passport photo. And he was giving me so much shit about that. Like, they're not going to take it. CVS knows what they're doing. Like, making the photo. And of course, his didn't get accepted. Oh my God. That's so crazy. Yes. I remember when I applied for my passport something about the way I printed the forms was like slightly off, like the size of it. Oh. And it was the forms, not even the picture or anything. They're like, I don't really know if this is going to work. Oh my God. But then they finally accepted it. But I was like, are you serious right now? It's kind of crazy that we still have to do all that stuff when everything is digital. Like, why can't you just upload it online? Yeah. And fill everything out online. It's so weird. So annoying. There are security measures they could take to have it, you know, make it how they want it to be and make sure that you're not stealing anybody's identity or whatever. Everything Mm. else is digital. You can get a freaking driver's license in the mail. So, I mean, come on. (laughs) Oh, my God. So, that's in October. Going to be moving. We're going to Dragon Con. Oh. Big nerd festival in Atlanta. Yes. That's in a couple weeks, and I'm taking the week off after that, so I'm going to do a whole bunch of packing that week. Yeah. Are you going to be dressing up for Dragon Con? I don't have shit, so no. Just enjoy yourself. (laughs) Yeah. Keep it laid back. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. I'm not worried about it at all. If I can find something that I wore last year or something, I will, but that would require me to dig, and Mm -hmm. I... Mm -hmm. Just don't know if I have the stamina. <laughs> I guess I have to dig anyway in order to move. But. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh. That's the worst. I hate moving I so much. I fucking don't want to do it. I do want to do it, but I want it to be over with. Yeah. We'll have a fresh start. Yes. Nice. Get rid of these stupid... We're recording in my apartment tonight, and I've had a fruit fly problem the entire summer, and I can't... I've set traps out. I bought this thing on Amazon that, like, is supposed to catch them, and I still have flies. They're not, like, swarming everywhere, but they're still... I can see them flying through the air right now. Mm. It's insane. That's really annoying. I'm over it. I bet. (laughs) Well should what do you think we should do i put a prompt on instagram yes 
to have people ask us questions since we're recording tonight. Do you want to do that first or do you want to just like do the story and do that afterward or what do you think? We can go ahead with the questions. All right. Might as well. Let's do it. Okay. Well, the first question was from our friend James. Hi, James. He asks, would you rather eat a wet loaf of bread or drink a fish milkshake? This is so easy. It's so easy. I thought about this earlier and it took me five seconds to come to my answer. Yes. What loaf? Well loaf of bread. What loaf? <laughs> fish milkshake. That is disturbing. Yeah. That is horrifying. Yeah. I'm not even disgusted by a wet loaf of bread. Yeah. I mean, maybe a little, a little bit. bit. It's not great. I think about like a piece of bread floating in a lake or something. Oh, God. I'm just thinking about like if you've ever gone camping or something and put sandwiches in the cooler and then it leaks into oh, the... Oh, <laughs> God, yeah. That happened to me before. But I'm sure you still ate it. Yeah, I did. All right. Uh, K.L. Mitch's Ask, ask Is <laughs> um, Favorite Podcasts? Okay. Let's Go to Court, obviously, is one of my... Yep. And yours, I know. Yep, definitely Let's Go Talk. to Court. Let's Go to Court, by the way, is a podcast with two lovely ladies from the Midwest and they they each tell a story and it's like a court case or like a true crime case of some kind but it always ties in like the court element like the trial and they are both so hilarious yeah totally recommend it yeah I'm gonna plug my sister's podcast because I do enjoy listening to them too yeah um Fringe Theory they do an episode every two weeks like we do it's my sister Abby and her friend Kit and they're on my, they're probably number two in my, besides let's go to court, like yeah. in my, what do you call it? I don't know. Playlist. Your queue. My queue. What else do you like? God, ever since we started the podcast, I don't listen to a whole lot of podcast. Like, I don't know. I do listen to a lot of podcasts, but not, never like, I don't have like a favorite necessarily other than let's go to court. There is one that I really like. Um, I don't listen to it all the time. But it's called The Accidental Creative. It's hosted by a guy named Todd Henry. And it's like it's made for creative people or people in the creative field. And it talks about, you know, creative processes or like managing creatives or it just really helps with work stuff for me. Like every time I feel like I'm in a rut with work or like confused or don't know what to do, I'll mm-hmm. listen to this podcast. And for whatever reason, I always feel like the one I listen to is like an answered prayer (laughs) it always is so relevant to whatever I need so I really recommend that if you're creative or work in the creative field or manage creatives in any way shape or form nice I do on YouTube I watch podcasts too so those are like like I feel like all my Spotify podcasts are like the dark disturbing ones and then YouTube is like all comedians podcasts yeah which is so weird but Bad Friends is probably, like, my favorite one. It's with Andrew Santino and Bobby Lee. Oh, I need to listen to that. They're, it's so good. Oh, my God, I love it. They're hilarious. And I love Tom Segura's podcast, Your Mom's House. He does it with his wife. And they have, like, they're on, like, episode 600-something. They've been doing it for a long time. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, other than that, there's a bunch of, like, little podcasts like series podcasts that I've listened to oh, that yeah. I don't like yeah listen to anymore obviously because they're over but that that I could go on on and on about yeah but. <laughs> there's a ton of things I've listened to that I love but as far as like things that are just 
constantly in my ears, it would just be let's go to court, I'd say. Yeah. I'm also going to plug another podcast. Everyone I I know has a podcast. My boyfriend has a podcast now. He is an avid Dungeons and Dragons player. (laughs) And he and four of his friends have decided to play a game in podcast format. It's called Discount Heroes. And it's on Spotify on all the platforms. They're, They're actually using the same podcast host we are. So it's, it's everywhere, and I think they're on episode five. They're releasing weekly, and they're smart. They, like, banked a bunch of episodes before. Yeah. Organized. They, yeah, <laughs> and I don't know how they do it because they have five people, and the, the editing is just, like... Oh, yeah. I do not envy it. Oh, my God. I don't know how he does it, but... And Brent, Brent is the dungeon master. Brent is my boyfriend, He's the dungeon master, which he is the one that comes up with the story and creates the world. And mm-hmm. the players are his friends and they just participate in it, basically. So that's awesome. Anyway, another question. All right. Another question. Um, I think her name is Muher. Wait, Muher in Util. I don't know. Sorry if that's not right. Sorry. Um, She asks, do you guys know your astrological big three? Why, yes, I do. Mallory did it. I found out today. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Mine. So my sun sign is Aries. My rising sign is Leo. And my moon sign is Gemini. Okay. Mm -hmm. My sun sign is Cancer. That's right, right? Yeah. Your main... Okay. And then my moon sign is Pisces, and then my ascendant slash rising sign is Taurus. I knew it! Really? I knew it. we would have Taurus. Are you serious? So Why? What, wait, what was your... Pisces was the other one? Yeah. That's so... Yes. What does okay. that mean? Tell me! So <laughs> your rising sign or your ascendant is like the face you put on for the world, almost like how you project yourself. Two doors of Taurus. But anyway. And then your moon sign is like, I guess, your emotions, I think. Okay. Which, um, Gemini, I don't know. For me, I don't get that. But yeah, and then your sun sign is like your most dominant, I guess, is how you'd explain it. Yeah. How did you know that mine were... I just felt like Taurus is just you. I don't know. I, I guess I don't know enough. I have to look up those individually because I don't know Yeah. what that means, really. But just good taste, laid back, likes to indulge. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I definitely like to indulge. <laughs> oh, my God. That's funny. Our really good friend Melissa asks, can you video record your next episode with the pee-pee person in the background the whole time? (laughs) Unfortunately, we are not at Ashley's house this time. And also don't want to get arrested. Yeah, because we literally saw a penis the last time. So, I mean, it was dangling there. Oh my God. I didn't see it that much. I did. (laughs) I saw it. Okay, next question. VT Mama asks what is your research process like for each episode i don't know if we're super different but at least for me i just i start with trying to find okay what is available in the media on this particular case Mm -hmm. 
And then I'll watch a documentary. I'll read articles, Mm -hmm. read the Wikipedia page. It depends on how involved in the case I get in because there are some cases, (laughs) as you guys may or may not remember, I infiltrated the (laughs) chat group of... (laughs) A cult. Oh my god! <laughs> for the first did. episode, so um, I'd say it varies from regular to extreme for yes. me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I um, guess based on our interest level and time. And time, yeah, for sure. That that case I had been obsessed with for months and months and months. So mm-hmm. I had already put in the work on that one, basically. So yeah. But yeah, and I know we've been talking about this before. Like we both actually write out a script basically like we are reading exactly what we're gonna say yeah on the podcast and I know my sister who is on fringe theory she says that she makes an outline and does it like that I don't know how I don't know how yeah I I would just like completely lose my train of thought yeah I don't have improv skills like that no I mean we we do I think it's just like if you're having to tell facts yes a story you want to have it accurate yeah not that she doesn't do that i'd be constantly worried I would, yeah i would be like wait that on, I... let me double check that yeah exactly i'd be so worried that uh, i fucked something up for me like as soon as i get done telling a story i'll immediately start looking for the next thing and that's like one of my favorite parts is trying to find a story and so once i find something that's interesting i will just like First, I'll look and see if there's any like really good podcast series out there. Oh like, yeah, something like that. that. Yeah, I see if there's like 2020 or 48 hours, Wikipedia, Reddit. Like if there's a subreddit. Yes. Yes. Yeah. What else? Yeah, I I try and go every avenue I can, and like Mallory, if I'm like super into it, and if it's something that's like still relevant, and there's like live things happening. I'll try and um, be a little stalker, creepy person <laughs> like I did with Chandler Halderson. <laughs> and then I, meanwhile, the whole time I'm like taking notes and write, like putting all my sources together. And then like the last few days like, before recording, I'll just like lock myself in my bedroom and try and knock it out, write it out. And I also wish I could just improvise and tell the story from memory but I yeah I have to write it out otherwise I'll just lose my train of thought but that's the hardest part for me is actually writing it out too because all I want to do is just consume yeah what I'm finding out about it I don't want to have to actually like sit there and transfer it onto paper Mm -hmm. yeah oh I also like write an outline too once I kind of know everything I'll like make like chapters I make like chapters like introduction (laughs) introduction (laughs) like this person that person how they met this like and i'll divide it out like into like little bits climax so i can kind of know the how the story is going to unfold yeah i kind of like sometimes too i just rearrange information the entire time Mm -hmm. like i'll be like oh crap this needs to go here oh crap this needs to go here i've got to put this at the end it's yeah and it's also like you want to tell it in a way that is exciting all the way through or yeah. like interesting all the way through you don't want to like just be like this is what happened these are the details yeah um that's hard to do too not right. sure if i've achieved that but anyway tara miles 321 um she says oh. she doesn't have a question but she said she'd like to mention how much i love mallory's laugh oh 
Y'all are so much fun She's to listen to. Probably the only person. <laughs> no, Maud also said she loved oh. your laugh. Oh my god. Uh, one person hated it so much that they needed us to turn it down, which I <laughs> I understand. I understand that. But thank you, Tara. That's my old coworker Aww. from my dental days. That's so sweet. Kelly0908 just says, Mwah, with a kissy face. Mwah. Mwah, Kelly. Mwah. <laughs> and then Life of Spite, which is our friend Denise, says, how do you find ideas for new episodes all the time? I think we kind of answered that, but basically... If there's something crazy going on, like, and it's there's enough to talk about, we'll do that. Mm-hmm. If not, we just find, like, what's interesting to us. Yeah. It just um, depends. Like, some of them have been cases that I was just obsessed with. Yeah. And I was like, I can't wait to tell this one. Yeah. Today's episode, actually, since it's... That's the last question. Oh, nice okay. segue. All right. Today's episode, since we're number 20, somebody... Crap, I should have gotten their name. Had suggested that we do a 20-year-old case. Oh, Yeah. Mm-hmm. Damn it. A few I'm people s- suggested that. Okay. Well, I'm sorry, guys. I, <laughs> I did not write your names down, and it's been a while. So, originally, I was going to go another avenue and do a more well-known case, um, which may still do in the future, but I was scrolling Reddit one day and just came across a post that was like, Today marks the 20th anniversary of blah, 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 what I'm about to tell you. And I was like, oh, let me look at this. (laughs) And it ended up having a lot of information. Well, I'll say a lot of information. It's based in the UK. So a lot of the like video stuff that like episodes and stuff, Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to access because it's like region locked or whatever. It's so annoying. So I had a little bit of a difficult time in that aspect. But I still was able to find a buttload of information because this thing, this thing is going to be long and I'm so sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Mallory's introductory slide says you're not going to bed for a long time. Yeah. So So. buckle up, bitches. And the drink of the night? The drink of the night comes to you from my struggle as being an adult. (laughs) It is boxed wine, bitch. Oh, yeah. Chardonnay. I didn't give a fuck. I'm sorry. It's episode 28. It should have been like a big hullabaloo. I was going to do a Pim's (laughs) cup because this is based in England. And I was like, no, I'm going to Kroger and I'm not going anywhere else. (laughs) So, um, well, I love Chardonnay. (laughs) And I knew you liked that and I knew you couldn't have red wine. So I got that. Thanks. You're welcome. So yeah. Anything else? Should we just get into it? Let's do it. All right. Let's do it. All right. At 1145 AM on Sunday August 4th, 2002, Jessica Chapman left her home on Brook Street in Soham in the United Kingdom, England, to go to a barbecue at the home of her best friend, Holly Wells, in nearby Red House Gardens. Oh my God, this is reminding me of Delphi. I I was thinking of that the entire time. Because it's my second case with involving a pair of two girls. Yeah. Prior to leaving her home, Jessica told her parents that she was going to give Holly a necklace that was engraved with the letter H that she had bought for her on a recent family holiday to Menorca, which is a little island in the Mediterranean. I'm so jealous of everyone in Europe who gets to go on these amazing vacations because they're nearby. I know. My relatives that are in Romania just got back from, I think it was Greece. We're just like, uh, blah. So annoying. <laughs> yeah. 
So the two girls and their friend named Natalie Parr played computer games and listened to music for approximately half an hour before Natalie went back home. By 3.15 p.m., Holly and Jessica had changed into replica Manchester United football shirts. Football meaning soccer for you guys. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows, but I just had to reiterate. One of which belonged to Holly and the other one was actually her brother Oliver. She gave it to Jessica to put on. At 5.04 p.m., a photograph of the two friends was taken by Holly's mom before the kids ate dinner with the other house guests. They then returned to playing in Holly's bedroom at approximately 6.10 p.m. Then at approximately 6.15 p.m., the two girls left Holly's house without telling anybody that they were going to go purchase, I guess, candy from a vending machine. It says... They said the local sports center. I don't know exactly what that is. I don't know if it's like a rec center mm, or like... I bet. Yeah, something like, like YMCA that. YMCA or something. Yeah. I, I learned a lot about British terms doing this mm-hmm. case because I was like, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? Yeah. <laughs> so at 8 p.m., Nicola Wells entered her daughter Holly's bedroom to invite the girls to say goodbye to their guests only to discover that both of them were missing. Alarmed, she and her husband Kevin searched their house and the nearby streets. Minutes after their daughter's 8.30 p.m. curfew had passed, Nicola phoned the Chapman residence, which is Jessica's parents, to determine if the girls were at this location, only to learn that Leslie and Sharon Chapman were becoming concerned, you know, why their youngest daughter had not returned home. Mm Mm-hmm. Following subsequent frantic efforts by the families of both girls to locate their daughters, Holly and Jessica were reported missing by their parents at 9.55 p.m. Police immediately launched an intensive search to locate the missing kids. Over 400 officers were assigned full-time to search for the girls. These officers conducted extensive house-to-house searches across Soham, and Soham is spelled S-O-H-A-M, just a side note. Their efforts to search local terrain were bolstered by the assistance of hundreds of local volunteers and later some United States Air Force personnel stationed at nearby air bases. Cambridgeshire police released the photograph Nicola Wells had taken of the kids less than two hours before their disappearance, which depicted both girls wearing the Manchester United replica football shirts. A physical description of each girl was also released to the media, describing both girls as being white, approximately four feet six, and slim. Jessica was described as being tanned, with shoulder-length brown hair. Holly was described as being fair, with blonde hair. The parents of both girls were adamant that their daughters had been wary of talking with strangers, having warned them not to trust individuals that they did not know from early childhood. This insistence was supported by the head teacher of St. Andrew's Primary School, which is where they went, who informed the reporters that, quote, the possible danger from strangers is something we have impressed upon the children from an early age. Suspecting the children had been kidnapped, investigators questioned every registered sex offender in Cambridgeshire and neighboring Lincolnshire. These towns, Britain. (laughs) God. The Shire. Shire. Cambridgeshire and Lincolnshire. (laughs) 
over 260 registered sex offenders across the UK, including 15 high-risk pedophiles. I don't know what. Ew. I don't know what constitutes a high-risk pedophile. Like they're down to, yeah, commit crimes. It seems weird that they're only 15, but I don't know. Hmm. I feel like maybe America just has like shitloads more. <laughs> yeah. Of course, we have more people, I guess, that live here. <laughs> but yes. So the high-risk pedophiles were also questioned, but all of them were eliminated as suspects. Police also investigated the possibility that the girls had arranged to meet with an individual that either or both had contacted, like, in a chat room or something over the internet, but this possibility was soon discounted. On August 8th, and we're in 2002, CCTV footage of the girls recorded minutes before their disappearance was released to the public. The footage depicted the girls arriving at the local sports center at 6.28 p.m. A televised reconstruction of the children's last known movements was also broadcast nationally on August 10th, and both sets of parents granted an interview with presenter Colin Baker on ITV's current affairs program tonight, which was broadcast on August 12th. Other family members and friends of both girls also appealed via the media for the safe return of the girls. These appeals for information regarding the whereabouts of Holly and Jessica would see more than 2,000 phone calls and tips received from the public, with all information obtained entered into the investigation's Holmes 2 database. A candlelight vigil was held by the community on August 7th. Shortly after the girls' disappearance, Staffordshire police contacted the investigating officers to report their suspicions. The girls could have been abducted by the same man responsible for an abduction which had just occurred in their jurisdiction in the previous year, in which a six-year-old girl had survived an indecent assault by an abductor who was still at large and whose green Ford Mondeo, I've never heard of a Ford Mondeo, mm Anyway, it was identified as having number plate, number plate, license plates, number plates, <laughs> which had earlier been stolen in Peterborough. All these locations have like no meaning to me, but yeah. it's just Borough and Shire. And... Yeah. <laughs> the individual responsible for this abduction and assault was also believed to have followed a 12 year old girl in the same area. Although in this instance, his car had been fitted with license plates that had been stolen and Nottinghamshire Shire. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Get some new town names. Sorry. I love you, <laughs> England. It's just hard for me. I'm a stupid American. The same vehicle had recently been sighted in Glatton, Cambridgeshire, and this information was later included in a televised appeal pertaining to the girl's disappearance on the BBC's Crime Watch, although this potential lead ultimately failed to bear fruition or relevance, like everything else. Several members of the public reported having seen the kids in the early days of the investigation. One individual, Mark Tuck, informed investigators that as he had driven past the girls upon Sand Street in Soham Town Center at approximately 6.30 p.m. on August 4th, his attention had been drawn towards their Manchester United shirts, causing him to say to his wife, Lucy, 
quote, look, there's two little Beckhams over there, because they both said Beckham on the back. A young woman named Karen Greenwood also reported seeing the girls walking arm in arm along College Road approximately two minutes later. Another woman living in the nearby village of Little Setford (laughs) (laughs) claimed... Claimed to have seen two girls whose appearance and clothing matched those of Polly and Jessica walking past her home the morning after the girls had been reported missing. Police also received statements regarding a suspicious white van that had been seen in Soham on the evening of the children's disappearance. Investigators located and seized this vehicle from a caravan park in Wentworth on August 7th, although, again, this lead ultimately proved fruitless. On August 12th, police launched a media appeal to trace the driver of a four-door dark green sedan seen struggling with two young girls by a taxi driver who stated he had observed this individual thrashing his arms as he struggled to either placate or contain two female children inside his vehicle as he had driven on the A142 south of Soham towards Newmarket around the time the girls were last seen. This vehicle was last seen turning into the Studlands Park housing estate. Doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good, but guess what? Had nothing to do with it. Oh. The following evening, a jogger alerted police to two mounds of recently disturbed earth he had encountered at Warren Hill just outside Newmarket. The initial... Speculation by this individual had been that these mounds of earth may be the impromptu burial locations of the two missing girls. Please no. However, an overnight examination of this location revealed the two mounds of earth to simply be badger dens. (laughs) So nowhere still. Okay, good. Well, I don't know. Well. Badger dens. It's this case apparently kind of blew up, so it doesn't surprise me. Well, in the UK. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it doesn't surprise me they had so many people calling in these tips and they were all, yeah, you know. Just, again, reminds me of Delphi, all the different, yes. like, sketches and things. And... Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. There's another case, too, that I had that it was like, I just had deja vu being like, and this wasn't it, and this wasn't it. Yeah. And there was another case that was like that. I can't remember which one. One individual who claimed to have spoken with the girls immediately before their disappearance was 28-year-old Ian Huntley, who informed investigators on August 5th that he had engaged in a brief conversation with both girls on his doorstep the previous afternoon. Wait, what What? what previous afternoon? Hold on, sorry. Um, on the f- so they, he talked to them on the 5th, and he was talking about that he had just talked to them yesterday, so the 4th. Okay. Which was the day they went missing. Okay. According to Ian, Holly and Jessica both, this is a quote, uh, this must be some kind of phrase in England, I don't know, happy as Larry. (laughs) (laughs) They were both happy as Larry in mood, had briefly inquired as to whether his partner, his girlfriend, Maxine Carr, had been successful in a recent application for a full-time teaching assistant position at their school. Maxine actually had worked at the school that they went to, so they knew her. Did they know this guy? I don't think so. I don't, I'm not, it's unclear. Okay. I don't know whether they knew, because he talked to them, Maxine did not talk to the girls that day. So I don't know 
if they knew who he was or another, how he ended up starting to talk to them. I have mm-hmm. no clue. You said they went to his door? Well, this is what he's saying, yes. That, well, he said that they talked on the doorstep. Weird. Yeah. So when he replied that Maxine had been unsuccessful, one of the girls said, tell her we're sorry, um, before both children had walked along College Street in the direction of a bridge leading towards Clay Street. And it's unclear whether it was like before or after they went to the sports center. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Police were suspicious of Ian's account of the kid's disappearance. His house was searched by a single police officer on August 5th. Although no incriminating evidence was discovered on this date, the officer noticed numerous items of clothing on the washing line, despite the fact that it had been raining. Oh. Yeah. In reference to the evident extensive cleaning of his house's interior, Ian said, Excuse the dining room, we had a flood. Hmm. This officer was unconvinced by Ian's claims and suspicious of his agitated demeanor, and he remained a strong suspect. One day later, on August 6th, Ian drove from Soham to Grimsby to pick up Maxine. So I guess Maxine was in another city. Mm -hmm. Shortly before the two returned to College Close, a neighbor of Maxine's mother named Marion Clift observed the couple standing at the rear of the vehicle with the trunk open. According to Clift, a, quote, pale, shaking Ian Huntley had simply gazed into the trunk for several moments while Maxine stood alongside him, her head bowed, weeping. Oh, no. When Ian became aware of Clift's presence, he had abruptly closed the trunk. At approximately 12.30 p.m. on August 17th, A 48-year-old gamekeeper named Keith Pryor... I don't know what a gamekeeper is either. I didn't look that one up. Groundskeeper, maybe? Gamekeeper. Or like an animal person? Like a referee? Oh, maybe. (laughs) Gamekeeper. You'll have to forgive us, England. (laughs) What? A person employed to breed and protect game, typically for a large estate? What? What? I don't know if that's right. Oh, well, it is. Um, a person in charge be. of breeding and protection of game animals or birds on a private preserve. Huh. Well, it was on the... Okay, so... It, this is what they are. That looks right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's like the most stereotypical British, British guy. It looks like Sherlock Holmes, basically. Yeah, with two Labradors. Yeah. With a cane and a gun. Yeah, also a cane and a gun. What is... This picture's from, like, 1920? <laughs> so, anyways, I don't I don't know. It could be possible. A 48-year-old gamekeeper, whatever he did, named Keith Pryor, discovered the bodies of both girls <gasps> lying side by side in a five-feet-deep irrigation ditch close to a pheasant pen. Um, so he probably kept pheasants. I never even connected that. Near the perimeter fence of the Royal Air Force, Lake and Heath in Suffolk. A location more than 10 miles east of Soham where they lived. Pryor had noticed what he later described as an unusual and unpleasant smell in the vicinity several days earlier. 
And when returning to the area with two friends on August 17th, he had decided to investigate the cause of the smell. Walking through an overgrown verge approximately 600 yards from a partially tarmacked road, Pryor and one of his companions, Adrian Lawrence, discovered the children's bodies. Oh no. Immediately upon viewing the girls' bodies, Lawrence turned in the direction of his girlfriend, I guess she was there, Helen Sawyer, and shouted, Don't come any closer, Helen. Get back in the van. And he immediately reported the discoveries to police. Both girls had been missing for 13 days when their bodies were found. Hmm. And both were in an advanced state of decomposition. In an apparent effort to destroy forensic evidence, the murderer or murderers had attempted to burn both bodies. Oh my god. In addition, no clear footprints were discovered at the crime scene. Despite the efforts of the perpetrators to or perpetrator or perpetrators to destroy evidence and hinder identification, investigators rapidly deduced who the two victims likely were and that both had not died at the location of their discovery. Numerous hairs later determined to belong to Jessica were also discovered on a tree branch close to the location of the girls' bodies. The following day, a Cambridgeshire Deputy Chief Constable named Keith Hodder released a press statement to the media confirming the discovery of the girls' bodies, adding that both families had been informed of the developments and that although positive formal identification would take several days, investigators were, quote, certain as they could possibly be that the bodies were those of Holly and Jessica. August 21st, the bodies of both girls were conclusively identified via DNA testing. Nine days later, a public memorial service was held at Ely Cathedral to remember and celebrate the lives of both girls. The service was attended by approximately 2,000 people, including the girls' classmates, teachers, and the six family liaison officers who had provided 24-hour services for both families. Which is crazy. I didn't even know that that was a thing. But I guess that makes sense. An online book of condolence attracted more than 31,000 messages of grief and sympathy, and on August 24th, football clubs across Britain held a minute silence prior to commencing scheduled football matches. Mm -hmm. The formal inquest into the girls' deaths was held at Shire Hall, Cambridge, on August 23rd, 2002. At this hearing, coroner David Morris testified the bodies of both girls were partially skeletonized, and that no precise cause of death could be determined for either decedent, although Morris stated that the most likely cause of death of the both of the girls had been asphyxiation. Furthermore, Morris stated the girls had almost certainly not died at the location where their bodies had been discovered, and that both bodies had been placed at this location within 24 hours of their deaths. These conclusions were physically supported by an analysis of the shoots of nettles located at the crime scene, which enabled forensic ecologist and palynologist Patricia Wiltshire to approximate that the actual time the bodies had been placed at this location had been almost two weeks prior. The funeral services for Holly and Jessica were conducted on consecutive days in September of 2002. 
Services for both girls were held at St. Andrew's Parish Church, and both were officiated by the Reverend Tim Albin Jones. Both girls were laid to rest in private ceremonies, attended by only family and close friends within Soham's Fordham Road Cemetery. The children are buried in adjacent graves. At the request of both families that their privacy be respected, the media refrained from reporting upon either service. In the weeks following the disappearances, Ian Huntley reluctantly granted several television interviews to media outlets such as Sky News and the regional BBC News program, BBC Look East. Speaking of the general shock in the local community and at his apparent dismay at being the last individual to see the children alive. Oh my God. Were you able to watch any of these interviews? Oh, oh, you have? Yeah. Are, you gonna, are we going to watch them? Yeah. I'm going to. Okay. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> I freaking love. Well, I'm just assuming that he's involved, but I freaking love. Oh my God, Barry. When. Mm. Get your furry ass out of makeup. <laughs> when guilty people just start like blabbing to the media Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it is just something else it is something else it's unbelievable yeah by the second week of the kids disappearance ian had become an unofficial spokesman for the community of soham his explanation (laughs) what a fucking douchebag yeah he was super involved His explanation for this was that he wanted to convey to the media the frustration and despair the community was feeling. In one interview granted to Sky News correspondent Jeremy Thompson, during the second week of the search, he claimed to be holding on to a glimmer of hope that the children would be found safe and well, claiming that he had last seen the girls walking in the direction of a local library. This reminds me of Stephen McDaniel. That's exactly what I was thinking of the entire time. Somebody would have seen or heard something if somebody had tried to get those girls into a car, if it had just been somebody passing through. He does sound like Stephen McDaniel. Someone just passing through must have grabbed him. Yeah. Remember? Ian Huntley here is a familiar figure. Evening, Ian. You're the school caretaker. The girls, Jessica and Holly, would know you, and they saw you on the front doorstep. What, what went on? The girl, I don't know the girls. Um, I stood on the front doorstep grooming my dog down. She'd run away and come back a bit of a mess. Um, they just came across and asked how Miss Carr was, as she used to teach them at St Andrews. Um, I just said she weren't very good as she hadn't got the job. And they just says, please tell her that we're very sorry. And uh, off the walk in the direction of the, um, the library over there. And you may, as it turned out, have been the last person to actually chat to them before they vanished. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Wow. Wow. Yeah. What do you um, think, Barry? So just chill, normal. Mm-hmm. Just yeah. explaining what happened. So Maxine Carr, who was his girlfriend and who he was saying taught the girls previously at the school. Mm-hmm. Um, she was also interviewed by the press during the second week of the search for the kids. And... In this live interview, Maxine corroborated Ian's claims to have conversed with the kids on the doorstep as she had been bathing before both girls had walked away from their doorstep, adding, I only wish we would have asked them where they were going. If only we knew then what we know now, then we could have stopped them or done something about it. Now, if you remember previously... Yeah, wasn't she gone out of town? 
supposed to be gone. Yeah. And now she's saying she was in the bath. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. Discussing the individual personalities of each girl, Maxine described Holly as being the more feminine of the two, adding that Jessica was more of a tomboy, and that on one occasion, she had jokingly remarked to Jessica how, unlike many of her friends, she seldom wore a skirt. To this question, Maxine stated that Jessica had expressed her desire to be a bridesmaid at Maxine's future wedding, adding that Jessica had said that she would willingly wear a dress for such an occasion. So they really liked her. Mm. Yeah. Maxine also displayed a thank you card to the reporter, which had recently been given to her on the last day of the school year. Referring to Holly in the past tense, Maxine stated, she was just lovely, really lovely. But then turned around and made a direct appeal to the kids just get on the phone and just come home. Or if somebody's got them, just let them go. So I don't know if it was a slip up or hmm. what, but by the second week of the girl's disappearance, Ian had begun to lose weight and was displaying visible symptoms of insomnia. To one officer, he said, you think I've done it? I was the last person to see them. And then he started weeping. His erratic behavior and apparent distress led him to being prescribed antidepressants. Having actively participated in the search for the girls, Ian regularly asked police officers questions such as how their investigation was progressing and just how long DNA evidence could survive before deteriorating. We've had another case where somebody asked that and it's just like, why would you ask that? (laughs) One of these officers observed three vertical scratches on Ian's left jaw, each measuring approximately 1.2 inches, which he claimed had been recently inflicted by his dog. Hmm. Yeah. On August 16th, 12 days after the girl's disappearance, Ian and Maxine were first questioned by police. Both were questioned for approximately seven hours. Whoa. Yeah. Each provided formal witness statements to investigators before being placed in a safe house in the village of Histon. By this date, police had received information from several Grimsby residents who had recognized Ian in the television interviews he had granted to the media. These individuals recalled that he had been accused of rape several years earlier. What? Yeah. Oh, shit. Other individuals recalled that contrary to her own televised claims, Maxine had in fact been in Grimsby on the night the girls had disappeared and not at home in Soham, as she had indicated in the interview she gave to the media. What a fucking idiot. Yeah. Good job. The same evening, police conducted a thorough search of both five college close and the grounds of Soham Village College, where Ian worked as a senior caretaker, as the couple remained under police watch at separate locations outside Soham. So they had them separated. Hmm. Although each room of Ian's home had evidently been recently and meticulously cleaned with what was later described as being a lemony cleaning fluid, These searches located numerous items declared as being of major importance to the ongoing investigation. Although the evidence and artifacts were not made public at the time, 
the items recovered from the school grounds included items of clothing that the girls had been wearing when last seen, including their charred and cut Manchester United shirts, which were recovered from a trash can within a hangar of Ian's place of work. It was like a shed type thing. Yeah. They were at his work. Oh my God. Fibers recovered from these items of clothing proved to be a precise match to samples retrieved from Ian's body and clothing, as well as from five college clothes. That's their address. Furthermore, his fingerprints were recovered from the trash can. Hmm. Ian's car was also subjected to a detailed forensic examination on August 16th. The examination revealed the car had also been recently extensively cleaned, although traces of a distinctive mixture of brick dust, chalk, and concrete of precisely the same type used to pave the road leading to where the girls' bodies would be discovered were found around the wheel arches and around the pedals. Furthermore, a cover from the rear seat was missing, and the lining of the trunk had been recently removed and replaced with an ill-fitting section of household carpet. Oh my god. Yeah. (sighs) Having discovered the children's clothes at Soham Village College, police decided to arrest Ian and Maxine. Both were arrested on suspicion of abduction and murder at 4.30 a.m. on August 17th. Guess you gotta get them while they're sleeping. Were they sleeping? I, I don't How know. How could you sleep after I doing that? <laughs> I know, right? Jesus. I don't know. They were 11, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh. Why would you do that? You're a psychopath? Jesus Christ. I don't know. I hope it wasn't sexual. Uh, I will say that they could not tell that from the state of their bodies. But I have my suspicions. Yeah, just based off that claim that he was accused of rape the yeah. year prior. And there's more. Oh, shit. He's not a good guy. During initial questioning, Ian refused to answer questions and appeared evasive, confused, and emotionally detached. Just like freaking Stephen McDaniel. Yeah. Oh, my God. That was the creepiest interrogation. Yes. Yeah. Ever. Ever. What was it that he kept saying? I Um, don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, he would just say, I don't know, because he refused to answer yes or no. really weird voice. Yeah, and he would sit super straight without moving an inch or even a millimeter. He would just stare straight ahead. That case haunts me. It's horrifying. Should have done that one. That's Laura Giddens was her name, right? Laura Giddens. Is it Laura? Or, or I think that's her last name for sure. Giddens. That might be Laura. I can't remember. But anyway. Happened in our state. Yes. It was a little close to home. So he was evasive, confused, emotionally detached, occasionally drooling throughout police attempts to question him in an effort to feign symptoms of mental illness. Oh, cool. Yeah. (laughs) Drooling. Drooling. All right. All right, buddy. (laughs) 
But unfortunately, this tactic left police with no option but to refer to Ian to a mental hospital to undergo an extensive psychological evaluation. So he kind of got what he wanted. Yeah. By contrast, Maxine quickly confessed to detectives that she had lied about her whereabouts and her partner's actions on August 4th, as shortly before she had returned to Solom from Grimsby three days later, Ian had claimed to her in a phone call to have seen the girls shortly before their disappearance, admitting, quote, The thing is, Maxine, they came in our house. Oh. According to Maxine, Ian then informed her that the girls had entered their home in order for Holly to stop a nosebleed mm, that she okay. had. Yeah. Okay. I'm getting so many flashbacks to other cases. Like I know. I am too. Chandler Halderson <laughs> saying that his mom had frequent nosebleeds. Yes. Like, and they would just gush that. everywhere. Like, yeah. Insane. Yeah. So ridiculous. Yep. So that would cover any blood evidence they find in the home. Mm-hmm. Yep. And they're, you know, can be really bad too. So it could be, you know, a lot of blood that it could be accounted for. He then claimed to Maxine, Jessica had sat upon their bed as he helped Holly control the bleeding from her nose before the girls had left their home. Referencing one of the 1998 rapes he had committed, but had earlier claimed to her have been to have been falsely accused of in this phone call. That's a confusing sentence. Wait. So he raped some people. Uh. Like, it, it's been he's been charged or had been I don't know if I'll get into that later but he I guess the point of this sentence is that he started voicing concerns that he was again being falsely accused of some involvement in something but he had told her obviously that he had been falsely accused of the rapes too Mm. so anyway he also claimed his previous arrest had caused him to suffer a nervous breakdown wah she had therefore later I thought I knocked that fly into my wine. Mm-hmm. It's a black fly <laughs> in your Chardonnay. <laughs> it's a death row water. Is that a real song? Yes! It's Alanis Morissette. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. <laughs> Ironic. Come on. I don't know lyrics to songs. Wow. Oh my god. That was great. <laughs> She had therefore later agreed to concoct a false story with Ian to support his version of the events. So she was admitting all of this. After being informed of the discovery of the girls' bodies and the ample evidence attesting to Ian's guilt, including his fingerprints being recovered from the trash can in which the girls' clothes had been found, Maxine burst into tears, shouting... No, he can't have been. It can't have been. He hasn't done it. (laughs) Despite these revelations, Maxine initially remained emotionally attached to Ian and professed her belief in his innocence to both the police and her family. Honey. So she was admitting to, you know, lying about all this stuff, but then she's like, no, he didn't do it. Aww. So, I, I don't know, man. Oh. I don't know whether she actually believed that or if she 
was just trying to cover for him because she was like in love with him or something. She had to have known something because the trunk situation. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. True. So sit down, baby girl. Yeah. By August 20th, investigators had established sufficient physical evidence from Ian's home vehicle and Soham Village College to charge him with two counts of murder. He was formally charged with these offenses while detained for observation at Rampton Secure Hospital. What a name. Rampton. Rampton Secure Hospital <laughs> in Nottinghamshire. Shire. Nottinghamshire? Sure. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> And all preliminary hearings against him were postponed until the conclusions of his mental health assessment. Maxine was also charged with attempting to obstruct justice on this case. She was also further charged with two counts of assisting an offender. While held at Holloway Prison, Maxine regularly inquired to Ian's welfare and is known to have penned several letters in which she professed her continued love for him. Gross. She was still into this boy. No wonder she didn't get hired at the school. (laughs) She's a dum-dum. She's a little bit of a dum-dum. To determine Ian's state of mental health, he was detained under Section 48 of the Mental Health Act for almost two months at Rampton Secure Hospital. Here, his mental state was extensively assessed by a consultant forensic psychiatrist to determine whether he suffered from any form of mental illness and to whether he was mentally competent to stand trial. The psychiatrist concluded in October that although psychopathic, Ian did not suffer from any major mental or psychotic illness. Isn't psychopathy a major mental illness? Yeah, I don't know if it's like a state of being or like a mental illness. I was so confused when I was reading this and I was like... I was like, how is that? I guess that's true, though, because lots of psychopaths stand trial. Yeah, they're not, they're not like, I guess you have to know what you're doing and psychopaths know what they're doing. Yeah, that's true. And like, if you're, if you're like going through something where you're like under psychosis and you really don't understand what your actions are doing. That's a different story, I yeah. guess. God, yeah. No, just talking out my ass here. No, it makes sense. That actually makes sense. That clears things up for me. Well, I'm glad I could help. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> As a result, on October 8th, Ian was deemed mentally competent to stand trial. Ian was faced with a sentence of life imprisonment if a jury could be convinced of his guilt. He was subsequently transferred to a segregation unit in Milton Keynes, Buckinghamshire. On June 9th, 2003, he attempted suicide by consuming 29 antidepressants, which he had accumulated in his cell. Can that even kill you? Well, it didn't kill him. Although staff initially feared that he might die as a result of the overdose, he was returned to his cell within 48 hours. (laughs) (laughs) So deal with whatever happens to you after you take however many antidepressants. Yeah, you need more than that, apparently. I don't know what antidepressant it was, but... 
And then later he was transferred to a different prison. At a preliminary hearing held at the Central Criminal Court of England and Wales, or as it is also known, the Old Bailey, (laughs) on the 16th of June, 2003, Ian pleaded not guilty to the formal charges of murdering Holly and Jessica. Although he chose to plead guilty to the charge both stood accused of, both he and Maxine stood accused of, conspiracy to obstruct the course of justice, which in England... They call that conspiracy to pervert the course of justice. Ooh. Yeah. Maxine pleaded not guilty to the charges of attempting to pervert the course of justice and assisting an offender. The trial of Ian for the murders of Holly and Jessica opened at the Old Bailey on November 5th, 2003, before Mr. Justice Alan Moses, which I guess their judges are like they called him misters it's like a formal title of mister without a period they don't have a period after mister either oh okay is it spelled out no it's just mr oh wow but everything i saw had just mr without a period is it magistrate oh my god (laughs) what if it's magistrate Ashley, what if it's magistrate? <laughs> MR Justice. Mr. Justice. Mr. Justice. <laughs> England. <laughs> I'm gonna be so I don't know how to look at how do I even what do I even search? Magistrate Justice? Yeah, maybe. Mr. Justice? Mr. Justice. <laughs> maybe that's why there's no period. <laughs> I don't even know what to search. What is a magistrate, first of all? A civil officer or lay judge who administers the law, especially one who conducts a court that deals with minor offenses and holds preliminary hearings for more serious ones. This doesn't seem like it would be a preliminary. Mm -mm. But maybe they still call them magistrates. I don't know. That totally could be magistrate. We're just going to call him Justice Alan Moses. Yeah. If anyone knows, yeah, please educate us, enlighten us, because good God, Mr. Justice, Mr. Justice Alan Moses, <laughs> God. So Ian was charged with two counts of murder, to which he entered a plea of not guilty. Maxine was charged with two counts of assisting an offender and one count of perverting the course of justice. In his opening statement on behalf of the Crown. Prosecutor Richard Latham described the last day of the friends' lives and how by pure chance they had happened to pass by Ian's home at a time when Maxine was not present. Latham contended Ian had deliberately lured the girls into his home at approximately 6.37 p.m. and that both girls had been murdered shortly thereafter, with cell site analysis proving Ian had switched off Jessica's mobile phone either outside his home or within the grounds of Soham Village College after both girls had been murdered. Latham further emphasized that mobile phone records and eyewitness accounts proved Maxine had been in Grimsby on the evening in question, thus proving the statements that she had given to the police and press alike had been false. 
Latham then outlined the details of how Keith Pryor and his two friends had discovered the girls' bodies on 17th of August at a location Ian had known to be restricted via his plane spotting hobby, and thus where they were very unlikely to be discovered. So they were found in a restricted area. Hmm. Because he has a plane spotting hobby. So British. <laughs> I think there's is like that? this British guy on TikTok who is obsessed with trains. Oh, yes. <laughs> I know who you're talking about. He has that weird camera. Yeah. <laughs> and he runs and his face is like. Ugh. Oh, my God. <laughs> I guess it's called train spotting and plane spotting. I don't maybe, know. Yeah. Maybe plane spotting is. I guess it's a hobby. P.S. What? I don't know what the deal is but like i'll be working from home and i will hear a plane going over my house and twice now i've seen the shadow of the plane on my deck what it was so low that i was like this thing is going to freaking crash i mean the closest airport is i've it's only happened twice but that's so weird i don't want to like triangulate our positions by saying that but like to see the shadow of a plane yeah that's scary that means it was really close yeah was it really loud yes could it have been like from the air force base maybe i don't know i didn't see it i just saw the shadow but it was weird that's crazy wow damn damn so he was plane spotting yeah so he knew that that was a restricted area and that's why he decided to dump them there referencing the likely motive for the girl's murder and the actual cause of death of each girl latham stated that due to the extensive state of the decomposition of the bodies the coroner had been unable to determine the precise cause of death of either girl or whether the girls had been sexually assaulted before or after death however latham stated neither body showed signs of compressive neck injuries knife wounds drugging or poisoning, and that both girls had most likely died of asphyxiation. Mm. In a direct reference to Ian's claims that both girls' deaths had been accidental, Latham stated that only one person knows what happened after the friends entered his home. However, he further stressed the cause of death was undoubtedly murder, adding that, quote, 10-year-old girls don't just drop dead. In reference to Maxine's attempts to pervert the course of justice, Latham stated that as surely as night follows day, the two had conspired to concoct a false alibi to divert suspicion from Ian. Although he warned the jury Maxine could only be convicted of assisting an offender if they believed she had known Ian had murdered the girls. Adding her actual motive for providing lies to police with reference to the charge of perverting the course of justice was irrelevant. Over the course of three days, Latham outlined the efforts of both defendants to divert suspicion away from Ian, and Ian's own efforts to destroy all physical and circumstantial evidence linking him to the crime. Although despite these efforts, investigators had retrieved enough evidence to prove the children had been murdered within his home within approximately 12 hours of their deaths, transported in his vehicle to the location where their bodies would be discovered on August 17th. This included ample fiber evidence retrieved from Ian's vehicle, clothes and carpets which had been a precise match to the 
Manchester United shirts the girls had been wearing at the time of their disappearance. Latham then closed his opening statement by again bringing the jury's attention to Ian's claim that both the deaths had been accidental, remarking, We pose this question. Two of them? He then speculated Ian's defense counsel may try and argue that he had been confused, commenting, quote, In that case, they would have to consider Ian's behavior over the fortnight between the girls' disappearance and their bodies being found. Yeah, how would both of their deaths be accidental? Yeah, yeah. It's super unlikely. Testimony pertaining to the forensic evidence linking Ian was heard on November 24th. On this date, a forensic scientist testified as to the biological evidence recovered from the girls' clothing, footwear, and a dishcloth discovered within the hangar at Soham Village College on August 16th. Oh, my God. She testified that she had found minute traces of blood and saliva upon these garments, although she had found no positive traces of semen on the clothing. She further explained the reason for the lack of any definitive traces of semen being discovered could have been a result of the charred and melted condition of the article she had inspected. A crime scene officer also testified on this date that despite Ian's exhaustive efforts to remove any physical evidence of his crime from his home, a forensic examination had revealed several traces of blood spattering about the hallway and main entrance to the master bedroom. With that, actually, it's time for a break. I don't know why I went to the next slide. <laughs> I did did that backwards, but anyway. Okay, guys. Uh, we'll be right back. I'm so sorry that you're still listening to this. <laughs> what? I mean, <laughs> I feel like I've been talking so much. <laughs> So much. We talk so much every episode. It's cool. I know, but you guys have at least the same And they're of... choosing to listen to this. That's this true. This is their choice in the matter. And I also could walk out if I wanted. So don't <laughs> ever apologize. <laughs> okay. Good to know. <laughs> okay, guys. We're going to take a break. Bye-bye. We'll see you later. In a second. And we're back. We're back from the break. On December 1st, Ian testified before the court in his own defense. Mm-hmm. Good plan. Mm-hmm. Responding to questioning by his own defense counsel, Stephen Coward, <laughs> Ian admitted both girls had died in his house, but denied that either death had been intentional. According to Ian, he, Holly, and Jessica had entered his bathroom to stem a mild nosebleed Holly had been suffering when the girls had walked by his home. The bath was already filled with water as he had been cleaning his dog that afternoon. In the bathroom, he had slipped and accidentally knocked Holly into his bath while helping her stop the nosebleed. And this unintentional act had caused her to drown as he himself had simply panicked and froze. Um... That does not sound realistic at all. No. He further claimed Jessica had witnessed this accident and began repeatedly screaming, you pushed her, and that he had then accidentally suffocated her while attempting to stifle her screaming. Wow. Which he had preoccupied his attention as opposed to ensuring Holly did not drown. 
So he's like trying to stop her from screaming. Holly's drowning in the bathtub, according to him. What, she couldn't just get up? It's ridiculous. Right. <laughs> it's ridiculous. You can't just sit the fuck up in the bathtub. <laughs> yeah, like, that's so stupid. Oh my God. By the time his state of panic had waned, it had been too late to save the lives of either of the children, and that his first coherent memory had been of himself sitting on his vomit-stained landing close to Jessica's body. I don't know who vomited or what he's talking about, but I guess someone vomited. When questioned as to his failure to call emergency services and subsequent extensive efforts to both destroy evidence and divert suspicion from himself, Ian insisted he had first become preoccupied with whether the police and public alike would believe the girl's death had actually been accidental, and therefore decided to conceal all evidence of the deaths as opposed to either notifying police or paramedics. Okay. (laughs) Good. Good excuse, buddy. Good story. Yeah. Weeping, Ian admitted responsibility for both deaths, but repeated his insistence both deaths had been accidental. He further tearfully claimed he had not attempted to feign insanity upon his arrest, insisting the trauma of the children's deaths had temporarily erased his memory and his being in the presence of police had caused his mind to temporarily seize. Mm -hmm. On December 3rd, Maxine went into the witness box to testify in her own defense. Responding to questioning from her own defense counsel, Michael Hubbard, Maxine briefly discussed her initial acquaintance with Ian, their subsequent relationship, and plans to start a family once they both obtained financial stability before Hubbard directed his questioning toward her return to Sulm on August 6th and her discovering Ian had recently washed their bedding and had evidently cleaned sections of the house. To these questions, Maxine explained that her first impression had been that Ian had, quote, had a woman in the house, adding their bedding had been washed shortly before August 4th. Maxine further testified to having noticed a crack in the enamel of the bathtub which had not been there when she had traveled to Grimsby four days previously. When questioned as to why she had then assisted Ian in extensively cleaning their home in the days following the girl's murder, Maxine claimed she had done so as she had always been, quote, obsessive about tidiness. Questioned as to the efforts she had subsequently made to mislead both police and the media to divert suspicion from her partner, Maxine emphasized that she had only lied to police, the media, and anyone who asks to protect Ian, who had repeatedly assured her of his innocence of any wrongdoing and his fear of being fitted up by the police for the girl's disappearance should they discover the 1998 rape allegation made against him. She further claimed to have referred to Holly and Jessica using past tense merely because she had worked with the children in the past. Maxine further claimed she had initially attempted to persuade Ian to contact police and, quote, be open as to his claims to have invited the children into his home in order that Holly could stop her nosebleed, but that he had refused to do so. 
She further explained her focus had therefore been to protect Ian's job and reputation, adding that had she known of Ian's actual guilt, she would have never attempted to provide him with a false alibi, stating to her counsel, quote, if for a minute I had known or believed he'd murdered either of those girls, I would have been horrified. Concluding his questioning, Hubbard cautioned the jury not to succumb to the temptation of judging Maxine's morality, but to consider her state of mind prior to her arrest when considering whether the lies she had told warranted any criminal liability, stating she had, quote, done no wrong on the date of the children's murder and had not returned to Soham until August 6th. On December 10th, counsel for both prosecution and defense delivered their closing arguments to the jury. Latham delivered his closing argument on behalf of the prosecution by describing both Ian and Maxine as, quote, accomplished liars before outlining the prosecution's case. Both children had to die to satisfy Ian's, quote, selfish self-interest before Ian, with Maxine's support, had embarked on 12 days of, quote, cynical deception with Maxine only revealing the truth about her lies to the police after being informed of the discovery of the girls' bodies. Referencing Ian's likely motive for the murders and his claims at trial that both deaths had been accidental, Latham stated, quote, We invite you to reject the accounts of both deaths being accidental as desperate lies, the only way out for him. We suggest that this whole business in the house was motivated by something sexual. But whatever he initiated plainly went wrong. Therefore, in this ruthless man's mind, both girls had to die in his own selfish self-interest. Referencing Maxine's conscious efforts to deceive the police and media alike, Latham simply stated she had the prospect of marriage, a baby, a nice home, and a new start. She preferred to do what she could to make the best of the situation she was in. That involved, at all costs, protecting Ian Huntley. Following the conclusion of the prosecution's closing argument, Coward delivered his argument on behalf of the defense. He conceded that his client was indeed guilty of physical responsibility for the actual deaths, as Ian had admitted, and therefore deserved punishment, although he argued the prosecution had failed to provide definitive proof that Ian had intended to murder the children or cause them actual bodily harm. Furthermore, Coward contended the prosecution had failed to provide conclusive evidence to support their claim that Ian's actual motive for the murders had been sexual. Coward concluded his closing argument by requesting the jury to deliver a verdict of manslaughter in relation to both deaths. Mm -mm. Yeah. So deliberations began on December 12th. The jury deliberated for four days before reaching their verdicts against both defendants. On December 17th, 2003, they returned a majority verdict of guilty on two counts of murder against Ian. He was subsequently sentenced to life imprisonment with a minimum term of imprisonment to be imposed by the Lord Chief Justice at a later date. <laughs> so crazy. The Lord. Lord Chief Justice. Well, good. Ian's face displayed no emotion as the verdict was announced, and the mothers of both Holly and Jessica burst into tears. Oh, my God. 
Although Maxine willingly pleaded guilty to the charge of perverting the course of justice, she pleaded not guilty to the charge of assisting an offender. The jury accepted Maxine's insistence that she had only lied to police and media in order to protect Ian because prior to their arrest, she actually believed his claims of innocence. As such, she was found not guilty of assisting an offender. Maxine was sentenced to three and a half years in prison for obstructing justice. Oh, wow. So I know. she's free. Yep. Yep. <sighs> what the fuck? Minutes after the convictions, the parents of both girls granted an interview to the media. Discussing Ian's mindset, Leslie Chapman opined, quote, I think he was a time bomb waiting to go off, and both our girls were in the wrong place at the wrong time. I hope the next time I see him, it will be like we saw our daughters, and it will be in a coffin. Yeah. The minimum term of imprisonment Ian should serve before being considered eligible for parole was decided on September 29th, 2005. On this date, High Court Judge Justice Moses... (laughs) I'm just going to leave that out because I don't know what if it's Mr. or Magistrate... (laughs) announced that Ian must remain in prison until he had served a minimum of 40 years imprisonment, a term which would not allow parole eligibility until 2042, Wow! by which time Ian would be 68 years old. In setting this minimum term of imprisonment, Justice Moses stated, quote, the order I make offers little or no hope of the defendant's eventual release. Good. Yeah. Ian avoided eligibility for a mandatory sentence of life imprisonment as the passing of the Criminal Justice Act 2003 had been just one day after his conviction, thus taking effect on December 18th, 2003, and applying solely to murders committed on or after this date. So I wanted to just take a little bit of time and talk about Ian, um, his background and his life a little bit. I mean, that's pretty much the case, but... um, Yeah, I need to understand what the motive was here. It seems like it was sexual, but... I think it was, too, just based on... that we don't know what happened. I hate that. Like, he owes it to the parents to tell them exactly what happened. Yeah, he does, but he won't, I'm sure. So Ian Kevin Huntley was born in Grimsby, Lincolnshire on January 31st, 1974. The first of two sons born to Kevin Ian and his wife, Linda. The Huntley family were working class and at the time of the birth of their first child lodged with Linda's parents in Grimsby. Following the birth of their second child, Wayne, in August 1975, the family moved to a rented property in Immingham where Ian attended school. Ian was a timid child, something of a mama's boy. In his early years, he frequently threw tantrums in order to obtain his mother's attention, although childhood friends would later remark how markedly afraid he was of his stern father. And it's really weird how much is known about Ian's background. Just Mm -hmm. like the video documentary that I watched focuses so much on him versus the victims. Yeah, There's like so much known about him. Weird. It's really strange. At both primary and secondary school, Ian was an average scholar. 
He was regarded as a loner, an oddball, and an attention seeker by his peers and became a frequent target for bullies. The bullying Ian endured escalated when he entered Healing Comprehensive School at age 11, resulting in poor academic performance. As a result, Ian's parents enrolled him in Immingham Comprehensive at age 13. He was again the target of physical and verbal bullying at the school, although he did form a few friendships via a shared interest in computer games. Ian also enjoyed football and was an avid supporter of Manchester United. At the urging of his father, Ian joined the Air Training Corps at age 13. His activities with this youth organization fueled an interest Ian had held since childhood for airplanes, and he seriously considered a future career with the Royal Air Force. Ian also developed a hobby of plane spotting, and via this hobby, he became familiar with the area of the RAF Lakenheath, which is where the girls were found, or like on the perimeter mm-hmm. of it. Despite having a few friends, Ian did form several relationships with girls while attending Immingham Comprehensive. Each of these girls was at least one year younger than himself, although none of these relationships lasted longer than a few weeks. In 1990, Ian finished his schooling, obtaining five GCSE passes, whatever that means. (laughs) He chose not to enroll in college or university and instead committed himself to finding employment. Between 1990 and 1996, Ian worked in a succession of menial jobs, although he rarely held any job for long. He also viewed himself as something of a ladies' man and was (laughs) extremely detailed with regard to his personal appearance and personal hygiene. Ladies' man paired with rape? I don't know. Yeah. Not so much of a ladies' man. In June 1994, Ian began dating 18-year-old Claire Evans, with whom he first became acquainted through his employment at a local Heinz factory. The ketchup? Yeah. (laughs) After approximately two months of courtship, Ian proposed to Evans. The couple then married at Grimsby Registry Office on January 28, 1995, although the marriage lasted scarcely one week due to Ian's volatile temper. Oh, God. One week. That's crazy. Dude. How long were they engaged? How long did they know each other? Two months. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. That's insane. It's like a ketchup relationship. <laughs> oh, he's a kitty. What a love from the mama. Hey, this booty. He's a sweet one. So he even does quiet meows. He's okay, baby. On one occasion, he is known to have beaten his wife so extensively, she suffered a miscarriage. Wait, so in the week he was married? Yes. He beat her. Well, I guess, I don't know if she, I guess she may have gotten pregnant before that. (sighs) Ugh. That is terrible. Awful. Shortly after their separation, Ian's wife formed a relationship with and later married Ian's younger brother, Wayne. (laughs) Oh, all right. Why would you want to stay in that family? (laughs) Why would you want to ever see Ian again? Seriously. Why would the brother be okay with that? That's so bizarre. That's so bizarre. 
So in March 1996, Ian was charged with burglary. Oh, okay. In this offense, he and an accomplice allegedly broke into the house of a neighbor in Grimsby and stole numerous electrical goods, jewelry, and cash. Although this case reached court, the prosecution offered no evidence resulting in a judge ordering the offense to stay on file. Which I guess that just means... I don't know exactly what that means, but he didn't go to prison or anything Mm -hmm. for it. Well, that was a fuck up. Yep. This is also a fuck up. Between August 1995 and May 1996, Ian established numerous sexual relationships with teenage girls, all of whom were under the legal age of consent. Gross. Three of these girls were aged 15 and one was 13. Ew, what the fudge? Yeah. One of these girls would become pregnant at age 15. (gasps) Oh my god, how old was he? Um, Ew, not that it even matters, but like... He was probably like 25-ish? Ew. He was in his 20s. Yeah. Oh my god. That's disgusting. Although reported to police on three occasions, Ian was not charged for any of these offenses, as each of these girls denied having engaged in sex with Ian. They were probably scared. I know. And that is horrible. It's so awful. Each refused to file criminal complaints and or refused offers of help from social services. I understand. I I get it. Why they wouldn't have admitted to it. Mm -hmm. But it's just a shame. Yeah. I hope they're okay now. I know. Well, one of them has this freaking kid. Oh, God. Yeah. Despite not being charged with any of these offenses, rumors of Ian's sexual interest in underage girls soon became community gossip. Wow. (laughs) And he was regularly insulted by neighbors and colleagues. I'm sure they were just like, hey, you pedophile. (laughs) (laughs) I pedo. Gross. Or pedophile, as they say in England. Gross. Hey, by the way, speaking of pedophiles. Um, oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> do you know, like, if you're a convicted sex offender, like a convicted pedophile, do you have to, like, tell the community? Um, I think you have to live in a certain area. Um, and obviously you're listed on the registry. I don't know if you have to, like, actively tell people, though. Do they have, like, stickers you put on your car? I don't think so. <laughs> oh, okay. Because so one of my new coworkers that would be crazy. She just moved to a town nearby. She um, said that her neighbor, who like seems very creepy, has a car that's like covered in stickers, but she only saw one, and one was like convicted pedophile. It said like convicted pedophile no on it. No way. Are you serious? And I was like why would you ever have that on your car unless you were, like, made to have that on your car? Yeah. I don't know. But she said he had a ton of stickers, and I was like, well, maybe he put a ton of stickers to conceal the fact that he had that sticker. Yeah. But I I didn't know if that was, like, something. I don't know. Now I'm curious. Yeah. 
Oh my god! I mean, I've never seen a and sticker then, on a car that's like convicted pedophile. I haven't either. But then I was like, "Well, look up um, the convicted sex def- sex offenders in the area," and she just said there's like so many. Oh my god, dude! But yeah, so gross. Wow, that's crazy. Yeah, if anyone knows about that, let us know. Yeah, for real. I'm curious. I feel like you do have to notify, or like the. I know. People notify like neighbors and shit. There's like a, there's like a community publication in our area. Yeah, and they do alert the community. Like this person is in the area now. Oh my god! They have their picture and wow. Yeah, that's crazy. So people made fun of them for being a pedo. As a result. Ian began rebuffing any offers to socialize with colleagues for fear of being attacked while alone in their company. In April 1998, Ian was arrested on suspicion of raping an 18-year-old woman. He admitted engaging in sex with the claimant, but claimed the act had been consensual. He was not formally charged with this offense, of course. Just one month later, Ian was charged and remanded in custody at HM Prison Walds. I don't know what that... HM Prison Walds? A prison. For one week after another 18-year-old Grimsby woman claimed to have also been beaten and raped by Ian. Oh my god. While walking home from a local nightclub. That is horrifying. Yeah. This complainant further... Stated Ian had threatened to kill her before assaulting her. Shit. Ian admitted engaging in sex with this woman, although he insisted the act had been consensual. Again. They just like happened to bump into each other and decide to have sex on the way home from the club. Yeah. The criminal charge was dropped a week later after the Crown Prosecution Service having examined CCTV footage from the nightclub and finding evidence of the two socializing within the nightclub, determined insufficient evidence existed to secure a conviction for this offense. As a result of the criminal complaint, further rumors regarding Ian's sexual violence also became community gossip, resulting in Ian being fired from his job and forcing him to move into his mother's home. Furthermore, he was forbidden from initiating contact with his baby daughter or her mother. In July 1998, police were notified that Ian had also sexually assaulted an 11-year-old girl. Ew. In September 1997. Oh my having God. also threatened to kill the child if she informed her mother. Oh my God. He was also never charged with this offense. Why? Although he subsequently confessed to this attack in April 2007. So this is like way after even the murders of the girls. Oh my God. Isn't that... Why does he keep getting off on this I stuff? I don't know. Like, what the hell? Evil. Yeah. The final criminal allegation against Ian prior to his committing the Soham murders dates from 1999. In this instance, a woman was raped and Ian by this stage, suspected by police as being a serial sex offender, uh, duh, Yeah, was interviewed. Ian supplied a DNA sample to assist in their inquiries, with Maxine also providing an alibi to support his claims of innocence. 
The victim of this assault subsequently stated her belief that Ian had not been the perpetrator of her assault. This would prove to be the sole instance in which a suspected or proven victim of Ian had not identified or named him as being her assailant. So, um, by 2001, Ian's proven and alleged criminal activities had been reported to the Humberside police on 10 separate occasions and to social services on five occasions. So Ian's actual motive for killing the children is unknown, although minutes prior to encountering Holly and Jessica, he is known to have engaged in a heated argument with Maxine, culminating in his slamming the telephone down. Ian had allegedly suspected Maxine of conducting affairs throughout their relationship leading both his mother and some police officers to suspect Ian had killed the two girls in a fit of jealous rage. However, prior to his trial, a criminal profile had resulted in his being ruled by an eminent criminal psychologist as a, quote, latent predatory pedophile who had chosen to lure Holly and Jessica into his home upon a moment of opportunism. Yeah, that seems likely. Yep. The prosecution had contended at Ian's trial a likely sexual motive existed for the murders. And after hearing his background, I 100% agree. Holy shit. Because he is fucked up. Testimony from Maxine had indicated her suspicions sexual activity had occurred in their home in her absence. She thought that there was another woman in the house or whatever. Although Ian had insisted throughout the entirety of their relationship that Maxine perform all domestic chores, she had observed that he had washed the quilts, pillowcases, and sheets of their bed in her absence. However, pathological evidence retrieved from the bodies indicating at least one of the girls had been subjected to a sexual assault either before or after her murder was not disclosed Ew, at the jury's no. trial. I mean, jury at Ian's trial. So they think that, you know, he had intentionally lured them into his house with a likely sexual motivation. Maxine was out of town, um, even though she said she wasn't. But investigators found no evidence of premeditation in relation to the murders. Following his arrest, several former girlfriends and sexual partners stated that although Ian presented himself as a charming and considerate individual in the early stages of a relationship, he would become domineering and violent upon having established a sense of control. Having established control over his partner, Ian severely restricted and supervised any contact she held with her family or social acquaintances. He would also emotionally blackmail his partner if he detected any signs of her developing resistance to his control or indicating a, a desire to leave him. But how they got together... Um, and they got together in 1999. Um, they met in a nightclub and Maxine was actually drinking with a former boyfriend when Ian approached them and initiated a conversation. And according to Maxine, she was instantly attracted to Ian's self-certain and pleasant persona and agreed to begin dating him the same evening. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah. Within four weeks of their acquaintance, she had moved into Ian's Barton-upon-Humber flat. 
And the couple informed relatives of their eagerness to start a family. Ew. This is ridiculous. Ian moves quickly. Yeah. Really quickly. He has to before he turns into a freaking psychopath. Yeah, exactly. Shortly thereafter, the couple moved to a ground floor flat in Scunthorpe. (laughs) That sounds terrible. It does. Where Ian formally proposed to Maxine in June 1999. Although publicly an infatuated couple, Ian was notably possessive of Maxine and is known to have both emotionally abused and or physically assaulted her on numerous occasions. Often culminating in Maxine returning to live with her mother before Ian persuaded her to return to live with him. Furthermore, both Ian and Maxine are both known to have conducted affairs throughout the course of their relationship. Noting how Maxine often became flirtatious whenever she consumed alcohol, Ian actively sought to minimize any opportunity for her to drink or otherwise socialize outside his presence for fear of her cheating with him on other men. So in 2001... Ian reestablished contact with his father who worked as a school caretaker and he would regularly travel on his days free from work to help his dad and soon developed aspirations to become a school caretaker himself. Wonder just in my, the back of my brain, I mean, he was a school caretaker at a college, Mm -hmm. but who has an aspiration to become a school character? <laughs> Unless your motives are like, let me get some young ass. Yeah. Right? Well, this would be a great opportunity to hit on some young ladies. Exactly. With my charming persona. Mm-hmm. Gross. It's, yeah. That's all I can think about. Yeah. I, also, I've never heard of a good school caretaker. They're, they've always been like some kind of perv. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry if you're a school caretaker. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there are good ones out there, but like in stories where you hear about them, it's always something like they fucking raped and killed someone in a janitor's closet. Oh my god. <laughs> so extreme. Um so anyway, he learned of a school caretaker vacancy in Soham and that's how he got the job. He actually got Maxine a job at St. Andrews Primary School. Maxine lied on her application that she had qualifications for the position. Oh, wow. <laughs> and eventually became a teaching assistant for the year five class. And Holly and Jessica became two of the pupils that she taught. It's funny that he like kind of hooked her up with that situation. It's like another stream of people that he can yeah in july 2002 maxine applied for a vacant full-time teaching position at st andrews she received notification on july 23rd that her application was unsuccessful one of the children to express dismay like we had talked about earlier um, was holly who having broken down in tears upon learning maxine's application for teaching position had been unsuccessful presented her with a hand-drawn card depicting a smiling face in which she said i'll miss you a lot thank you see you around school miss mm. ya love holly Aww. Ugh. 
horrible. Uh, by the summer of 2002, the physical relationship between Ian and Maxine had begun to deteriorate. And by Ian's own later admission, he had become sexually frustrated. And he had unsuccessfully attempted to persuade a married colleague to date him on the weekend Maxine visited her mother in Grimsby. So the, the weekend that he... Yeah, so it was Jones and big mm-hmm. time. Yep. At 9.53 a.m. on August 4th, Ian attempted to call Maxine, although she did not answer her phone. She only replied to his missed call at 6.23 p.m., which was hours and hours later. Have you ever heard anything like that before? They're noisy, but that was crazy. What the fuck was that? I wonder if they're moving furniture or something. Wow. That sounded like a ritual dance. Yeah. (laughs) I don't like it. God. Oh, I'm so ready to get out of an apartment. Can't wait. Shut up. (laughs) Anyway. This four-minute phone call escalated into a heated argument, culminating in Ian angrily terminating the phone call after she informed him of her intentions to go out again in Grimsby that evening. Four minutes later, Maxine sent Ian a text message which read, quote, Don't make me feel bad because I'm with my family. And Ian did not reply to this message. An orange-petaled rose dedicated to the memory of Holly and Jessica was unveiled by representatives of Soham Town Council at the 2003 Chelsea Flower Show. The inspiration for dedicating a flower to the children's memory sourced from a poem read aloud at the memorial service at Ely Cathedral on August 30, 2002, by the father of Holly, titled Soham's Rose. Mm. I know. On April 3, 2004... The three-bedroomed house in College Close where the murders occurred was demolished and the site leveled, with all rubble from the property being destroyed and later discarded in various undisclosed locations. The site where five College Close once stood is now a vacant patch of grass. Within days of Ian's formal sentencing, he reflected to the media on the prospect of his spending the remainder of his life behind bars and of his fears for his security, exclaiming, quote, I'm going to rot inside this place. I'll rot in here, I know it. I'll spend the rest of my life in here. I'm going to be inside forever, and it'll be torture. Yeah, it will be. I hope it's worst. I do too. In the years since his incarceration, Ian has been repeatedly attacked by other inmates. On September 14, 2005, while incarcerated at HM Prison Wakefield, he was scalded with boiling water by convicted spree killer Mark Hobson. The injuries Ian received in this attack resulted in his being unable to attend the hearing at which his minimum term of imprisonment was decided. Following this attack, Ian alleged that prison authorities had failed their duty of care towards him and launched a claim for £15,000 in compensation. He was reportedly awarded £2,500 in legal aid to pursue this claim. It's like, dude, get over yourself. You got burned by water because you're an asshole. Mm -hmm. Of course, another serial killer did it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm curious about this guy. I know. 
Oh my god. Ian was transferred from Wakefield Prison to Franklin Prison on January 23, 2008. Two years later, on March 21, 2010, he received non-life-threatening injuries to his neck after his throat was slashed by a convicted armed robber. The injuries Ian received in this attack required hospital treatment, and then Ian again applied for compensation for the injuries he received in this attack, seeking 20,000 pounds in damages. Um, and I did not, I could not find out whether he got that or not. But so I had mentioned earlier that he tried to commit suicide by overdosing. They actually did a search of his cell, which in which they discovered a cassette tape. The cassette tape contains a markedly different account of the murders of Holly and Jessica than that to which Ian had testified at his trial. What? In what Ian had believed would be his posthumous confession, he claims to have confessed to having murdered both girls to Maxine prior to their arrest, and his plans to confess to authorities to which Ian alleged Maxine had slapped his face and informed him to pull himself together, as she did not wish to lose the teaching position she had yearned for all her life. He is just trying to get her in trouble Exactly. Ian further alleges Maxine had encouraged him to burn both bodies in an attempt to destroy all forensic evidence linking him to the crime. It is believed Ian had agreed to make this recording for a fellow prisoner who had hoped to later sell the confession to the media after his release in return for his being provided with the antidepressants he had used to attempt suicide. Jeez. Yeah. Uh, Maxine was released on probation from prison after serving 21 months. She was given a secret identity to protect her from the threats of attack from vengeful members of the public in addition to being provided with a new home in an undisclosed location. Maxine is one of four former prisoners in the United Kingdom to be given an entirely new identity upon release. That would be kind of fun, Only four. Yeah. I want to do that. Yeah. That'd be cool. Let's just start a new life somewhere. Yeah. Start fresh. That'd be great. Damn, how can I get into witness protection? Probably don't want to try and do that, but... (laughs) Yeah. They should... Like, she doesn't deserve to have her identity protected. No, she doesn't. Like, honestly, people need to know that this woman will, uh, you know, back up a a killer and a rapist. Yeah. And lie the whole time. Hopefully she's not teaching school somewhere. Right? (laughs) She could be. Because that's all she's got in her experience. Yeah, so she won an injunction on February 24th, 2005, granting her lifelong anonymity on the grounds that her life would otherwise be in danger. The costs of imposing this order have been reported by differing tabloid newspapers as being between 1 million pounds and 50 million pounds. (laughs) And then apparently at least a dozen women have been falsely identified as being Maxine. Like people are just like, oh, this is Maxine. This is Maxine. Trying to figure out who she Hmm. is. (laughs) Um, And some of them have even been physically attacked. And um, that's crazy. 
I think you have a fly in your wine. No. You're right. <laughs> oh my god. I'm so glad you saw that because I was about to take a sip. Uh, At least it's one less. Yeah. <laughs> it's dead now. It's actually still alive. Fuck. She also wanted to write a book. She contacted a publishing company to see about publishing her autobiography. Oh, God. <laughs> um, she actually got a publishing company to initially agree to publish it. But they soon withdrew their offer after a feature on BBC Radio Newcastle prompted scores of complaints from the public. Immediately following Ian's conviction, his previous criminal history was disclosed to the public. And these disclosures revealed that despite his extensive record of sexual offenses against underage girls and young women and evident criminal recidivism, not only had police failed to pursue these previous criminal complaints and allegations, but Ian had secured a position of employment facilitating his access to children, which is exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. So I'm going to leave it at that. Um, there, well, let me just, this, I can't even with this name. There's something called the Bitchard Inquiry. <laughs> the Bitchard Inquiry. It might be Bichard, <laughs> but it's spelled B-I-C-H-A-R-D. And all I can just think of is Bitchard. <laughs> Bichard. Um, anyway, it essentially recommended the implementation of a mandatory registration scheme for people working with children and vulnerable adults, such as the elderly and mentally handicapped. It later led to the foundation of the independent safeguarding authority and... The findings also suggested a national system should be implemented for police forces to share intelligence information and that all police forces should follow a clear code of practice on record keeping. And it ultimately led to the tightening of various procedures within the Criminal Records Bureau system, including compulsory checks into potential criminal backgrounds of people who apply to work with children. So at least something good came out of it. Jesus Christ. But anyway, that was a long one. But. So sad. I know. It's horrible. And I don't understand how there can be people like Ian in the world. I know. We hear about it so often. Mm -hmm. Damn. Those girls would be 30 now. Yeah. Poor things. Mm Mm-hmm. It's crazy. Oh, man. Well. Thanks for sharing. That was, uh, I had never heard of that. I'm assuming it's really popular in the UK. Or really well known. Yeah, it did become popular in the UK. Or insane. Yeah. And uh, I'm going to try to stop doing child murders. (laughs) Ashley and I were talking over the break. Yeah. (laughs) I basically do tons of child murders, and I swear to God it's not on purpose. So, yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, I'm glad he's still in prison. He's alive, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Crazy. Mm Mm-hmm. You guys know where to find us. Instagram, rabbit hole happy hour, Facebook, join our Facebook group and start talking. Yeah. 
Yeah, we've had a lot of new people join recently, so welcome. And um, I hope that you guys, if you're enjoying the podcast, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be great to hear your thoughts and also Spotify. Mm -hmm. So do you have anything else you'd like to add? I don't believe I do. Well, we hope you enjoyed our 20th episode. We're so proud of ourselves for... Sticking with it, baby. Sticking with it, and I'm still enjoying it. I I get super excited every time we record, so... Yeah, recording is awesome. All right, guys. Have a good day, and we hope to hear from you on Facebook or Instagram. Get in touch. (laughs) Okay, bye-bye. Please.